this is the Life and Soul podcast by me, Emma Forbes. This year has really been a year. Amidst the madness, we've all had a time to reflect on what we most appreciate in life. I want to find out from some brilliant people what makes them tick, asking them what really gives them life and what really feeds their soul. I find out whether priorities have changed, whether they've stopped striving to do everything right here, right now. So please join me for this episode of the Life and Soul podcast. I'm thrilled to be joined today by somebody I know. I know his husband very well since I was a little girl, and I'm just such a huge fan of the work you do. David Furnish, thank you so much for coming on my show. Thank you for having me. It's great to be here. I'm thrilled to have you on because I'm launching around the same time as World AIDS Day, and I'm so glad that we've got the opportunity to talk about all the incredible work you do behind the scenes. But really, it's so hard not to start by asking, how has lockdown been for you and Elton? Because for a couple that do a lot of traveling, it must have been uh, an interesting time. Without question, it's been a huge adjustment um, because we had been on the road as a family on tour with Elton. We'd taken the boys out of school last year with a tutor and we'd gone to Canada, to America, to Australia, to New Zealand. So we, we were zipping around the world at quite a clip. And then last March when we left Australia, suddenly the whole world shut down. So it was a tremendous adjustment just in terms of pace. But I have to say, it's been a wonderful, wonderful opportunity for us to spend so much time together as a family and to just kind of slow down a bit and take stock um, in a way that a crazy busy schedule never gives you the time to do. I know, I think a lot of people share that view that actually there might be things I don't know if it applies to you two that you might hold on to even post lockdown life I mean I'm hoping there is a post lockdown life because we're all getting a bit like is the is, is, is this ever gonna end but I mean moving forwards I know you know a lot of people that I've interviewed are just like actually there are certain things that I will hang on to and that I will do because I never had time to do them and I don't know if you felt like that well we we've had lunch with the boys together as a family every single day, every single meal. And normally the boys are in school or if we're home together as a family, Elton's off doing a show or I'm in at the office. And so we've always made that a sacred 45 minutes where there's no telephones, no TV, no, no internet, no games, no toys at the table. And we just have conversation and we just talk. And I've seen such a development in their inquisitiveness they're they're questioning and asking questions all the time and then also picking up on elton's incredibly um cheeky sense of humor uh and you know the elton is as you know only too well he loves to tease he loves loves to make fun of things he never takes himself very seriously and so the boys are picking up (laughs) a lot of that um in in a really fun way so i i i want to maintain that that i think conversation is such an underrated thing in today's world I, i get a bit down when I see people walking around hunched over their phones all the time. And I see other kids in our community, they're, they're just always being mediated to. They're always looking at laptops and looking at iPads and looking at phones. And you know, the, all those things are great, but the connection you can have one-on-one with a human being is always such a profoundly powerful thing um, and something we can lose sight of. And yeah. so I think COVID also keeping us all in one place under one roof has really, I think, shone a big light on the importance of human connection and in person. Yeah, no, and I I have to say, I think your boys are such a credit to the two of you. They are adorable. I've met them a couple of times and I know my mum is super close to them and she just says they are literally the most adorable boys. So I'm sure they've loved 
having the one-on-one with you. And yes, I can verify that when I was growing up in Elton, I had the odd breakfast with Elton. He never not made me laugh. I will never not love him for the fact that there were these lollipops that my mother never let me have. When Elton once was taking care of me when my parents were out, he said, what would you really like to eat? And I said, obviously, that lollipop. And he said, how many do you think you'd like? And I said, six. And he didn't have them. <laughs> so any future food issues I have, I can totally. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he hasn't changed. <laughs> <laughs> He's amazing. So I know that you've done, you know, it's, it's, it's during these really important times that we can't affect the other big issues. And I think that, you know, COVID we're all very focused on COVID, but there are huge issues. And and you've been working, it's the 27th year of the Elton John AIDS Foundation. You've worked there for 20 years, like tirelessly. I, I really wondered how it must've been during this pandemic to kind of keep the awareness, to keep the momentum going on something, which is equally as important. Absolutely. I mean, the, the most important thing with HIV AIDS is that we can't take our foot off the accelerator. It's important that people continue to have access to testing, uh, that they are able to know their status so the most vulnerable people can actually get an HIV test and, and know if they're HIV positive or not, because the way the disease works, the sooner you know your status and the sooner you start your antiretroviral medication, the longer and the bigger the chances for you know, fantastic success. So you want to make sure people continue to have access to an HIV test. You also want to make sure they continue to have access to their treatment because these are tablets you take. Most people take one pill a day um, and they take a a pill every day for the rest of their life. Um, They live with their HIV and they live very positively with their HIV. But if COVID is making access to healthcare, access to doctors, access to medicine more difficult, then it's going to be harder for us to continue to do the great work that we do with, with HIV AIDS because people have to continue to be tested and people have to continue to get their medicine to keep the disease dialed down and keep it at bay. So I guess the team must have been working very hard to make sure that message was continuously getting out there. It's, it's looking at the challenges that the healthcare system was facing in light of COVID. So a lot of face-to-face work that was being done in clinics, we had to move it to, to, to mobile type service, either through consulting people online or getting the right personal protection equipment so that healthcare workers can go out into the field and go out and connect with people on a one-to-one basis. So take the take the treatment to them, take the medicines to them, because I think now for most people, the notion of walking into, or at least last spring, walking into a doctor's surgery or a hospital, everybody's thinking, oh my God, I'm gonna walk into an environment that's rampant with COVID and I'm gonna get infected with that too. And so when you're dealing with a disease like HIV, AIDS, where there's already still a lot of stigma associated with having the disease, anything that puts another barrier in your way only makes it harder for us to continue to build on the successes and and maintain the successes that we already have in place. So we have to make, retool healthcare to make it appropriate for the COVID age. Yeah, no, I agree. And also the the fact is that normally leading up to World AIDS Day, you do incredible fundraisers and, and, and things that are social, you know, where, where huge groups of people are together. And that must've been one of the biggest challenges for you as well, because we all know that those sort of fundraising things, they make such a big difference. That's where people, uh, you know, get the big money in the big funding. How have you and Elton sort of creatively tried to work around that? 
we're fortunate as a charity in that we have a lot of very loyal long-term supporters uh, who've been you know, supporting the foundation for many, many years. And we all work hard as an organization to make people appreciate and understand how their money makes a difference, how it has an impact in the field. It's, a, it's about maintaining and building on great relationships. So we're fortunate a lot of the people who came to our events and who support us at our events, we've been reaching out to them personally on a one-to-one basis and asking them to continue to, to support our work. And they've been very generous in doing so. We had an instance where I woke up one morning and I read about Jack Dorsey, who is the founder of Twitter, and how he decided to hive off a substantial portion of his wealth and set up a charitable fund. And, and one of the first things he wanted to do was COVID-specific work. So we reached out to him and we said, we need extra money to allow us to continue to provide our HIV care and services within COVID. And he gave us a million dollars. So that's a, another example of reaching out to new people who are wanting to contribute and support. We had a, um, we put up an Elton John uh, concert series on YouTube. So we had the history of Elton's shows, three or four landmark concerts. We put those up and we gave people an opportunity to contribute via YouTube to support EJF. And then I managed to find regular Elton John AIDS Foundation supporters who were prepared to match what those people gave. So it's just being a little bit more creative, a little bit more innovative. Yeah building on the strong relationships you already have. Um, we had a fundraiser planned for this summer. That last summer, that never happened. Um, we fortunately got our Oscar party uh, with a thousand people because that's a big fundraiser for us. We had that happen just before COVID arrived. Next year, with the Oscars going later, we're a little unsure. So we're planning two parties. One would be a live version like we've always done. The other would be a virtual version um, and try to create a way for people to still participate, feel part of the Oscar night uh, magic, but not be in a, in a room together where people's health is at risk because ultimately everybody needs to be safe. But I do think it's brought out in creative people like yourselves. It has, it has brought out a creativity of things, you know, because, you know, you, it, the, Elton John's foundation works so hard to, to, to sort of prioritize the vulnerable people around the world. I mean, it is, it is something you both do. I, I cannot, you know, praise it enough. It is incredible. At the beginning of COVID, watching the concert that you did out here, it's a real comfort. Like whether you're watching it or not, I'm just like, oh, I know that, you know, Elton and David will probably do something amazing and you do. And it really gets to people because it is so important. I think people have never been more vulnerable and, and more sort of in need of help in the biggest sense of the word and kindness. It feels at times there's a real kindness deficit in our world um, because a lot of the language and the rhetoric that's being used, you know, from, from politicians and that's being used in the media paints a very negative nihilistic view of the world. But I have to say from the philanthropic work that we do and the people who've always supported us, I have been bowled over. Everyone's taking the phone calls. Everybody's listening to the rationale. Everybody is appreciating that the work needs to continue to take place and they're stepping up and continuing to support us. And that says to me everything I want to hear about the human spirit. And I think that's what's really going on. And I, I think you're absolutely right. At a time like this where people are more vulnerable um, and more under, under a, a level of stress, a level of anxiety, um, I think a sense of isolation, a loss of community, reaching out and helping other people has never been more important than it is during these really, really difficult times. I think COVID is, has really shone a light on that in, in a big, big way. 
I think it has. And it, it feels to me like since I first, you know, was aware of AIDS and HIV and, and all that sort of initial, I guess, awareness and the ads and things like that, it feels to me like the journey has come a huge way, but there is still a huge way to go because people live with it, but it's not a cure yet, an outright cure. So you've still got, you know, even though the death rates I know have radically changed, as you say, people can live with it and live with it super successfully, particularly if they get early on treatment. But, but, but the what next, how, how, what is the sort of projection? Is it, I know the goal is to reach the cure by the end of 2030. Do you think that is achievable? Yes, I do. And, and the, the UN AIDS people, you know, they've set that goal and we're on track to do it, provided we can continue to maintain the same momentum that we've had in the past. We won't cure AIDS by 2030, but we'll be in a situation where there should hopefully be no new infections. Because where HIV AIDS has progressed so much over the years is in the area of treatment. Now, if you are in a risk group and you are HIV negative, you can take one pill a day that actually affords you better protection than a condom. Um, and that's called PrEP and that's or pre-exposure prophylaxis. And that gives people an opportunity who are more at risk of contracting HIV to protect themselves. For people who are HIV positive, again, one pill a day of an antiretroviral basically dials the virus down to such a low level in their body, it's actually a non-detectable level that None of the complications relating to AIDS ever appear, but it also means they won't pass the virus on to someone else. So treatment is prevention. So if you are an HIV positive person and you're on ARVs, you are not going to give someone or pass HIV on to someone else. So everyone knows their status and everybody who's at risk is either on medication or is positive is taking medication. There should be no new infections. And that's the goal that we're going for with 2030. And all of that is contingent on access to healthcare, testing and treatment. And what about the stigma attached to AIDS, HIV? There was a huge stigma. Let's and, it. And, a, and a lot of that stigma is still there, you know, because AIDS initially affected, you know, a disproportionately large group of LGBT people, mostly gay men and IV drug users. The association for a lot of people, particularly and most prominently in parts of the world where it's criminalized to be gay is that, oh, if I have HIV, I'm gay or I'm a drug user because it's sexually transmitted. There's a lot of shame associated with having an HIV diagnosis, which is all rubbish, really. HIV has affected a broad swath of society. Anybody. I mean, nobody. No one is is immune. It, 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 It was the largest disease that affected our world. I think when it started out in the 80s, people naively and and in a very narrow lens looked at it as, oh, it's only affecting a bunch of gay people. Um, you know, we don't need to worry about them. They, we didn't have the voice in society then that we have now. And people ignored it and ignored it at their peril because it went on to become the largest disease affecting the world. And that just shows the interconnectedness of our world and of our society. Um, so there's, whilst we've made these tremendous scientific advances, Stigma, unfortunately, still is very, very heavy and particularly heavy within certain communities, uh, the most marginalized people in our society. Um, and, and that is where we need to continue to do work. The other area where we continue to see growth is amongst young people who perhaps haven't witnessed and seen the devastating impacts of HIV that I saw 
as a gay man who, who you know, came out in the 80s and 90s, um, people are living long, full lives with an HIV diagnosis now. So they don't have the information or any understanding that they are at risk of potentially um, contracting HIV. And so we're seeing a spike in new infections amongst young people within certain communities around the world where they don't have access to the right information. It's all about information. It's getting the information out there, people talking about it, having it as an open subject. And again, I think, you know, during times like this, with COVID, it's the same with people with cancer treatment, anything. We've got to keep those conversations going as much Absolutely. as anything else because they are just as important. They're killing as many people and it's got to keep out there. Yeah, and if you're, and if you're scared to go into hospital of contracting COVID, then you're not going to go and have your, your mammogram. You're not going to go no. have your HIV test. You're not going to go have a blood test and discover your, your prostate antigen has gone up and perhaps you might have prostate cancer. All of these preventive things that we do, they have to continue to take place. Our whole healthcare system will survive and be a lot healthier the sooner we get to the bottom of every potential medical uh, condition that people are at risk of, of confronting yeah. later on in life. And so we just can't switch off the healthcare system, only focus on COVID. We have to make sure that we don't lose the ground we're gaining and all those other you know, important, important causes. I couldn't agree more. So you and Elton, you know, let's be honest, you're a force of nature, you two. If you set out to do something and you fundraise, you not only do it, you do it with with bells on. And and it's incredible. What is the the sort of the deep-rooted passion or the drive? Is it because you were doing it even pre-kids? So I know, you know, having the boys must be an extra push, but you've both you're so well matched in this incredible passion to 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 do good and to get messages out there and to change the world what is underneath it that makes you do that um i think it's a combination of two things i think on the one hand i think Alton and i recognize both of us recognize that we're very lucky to be living the lives that we live and uh have a lot of good things happen to us in our life and when life is good to you and treats you so well you have to give back you have to put your arm around as many people as you possibly can and help and support people. That's the way a society in my view functions. And I, I always think we get a little bit out of balance when people are becoming too self-focused and not necessarily thinking about the needs of others. And, and we don't live in an equal world um, where everybody has access to the same things. And I think if life has been good to you, you have a duty and an obligation to give back in any way you can. And that, that is something I had before I met Elton. I've always had that in my life. That's the way my parents raised me. Elton is the most supportive, helping friend to anybody in need. It's, it's in his DNA anyway. So we both have always felt it's important to help other people. But as gay men who both lived through the 80s, we lost so many friends to, yeah. to HIV AIDS. And in my case, I was able to write checks and, and small contributions before I met Elton. In Elton's case, he didn't get sober until 1990, and he really regrets the fact that he could have done more. He said, I could have been a bigger voice for change. I could have advocated for, for more government support and, and got thrown my hat in the ring sooner. So it was part of redressing the balance for him to pay back and make up for those years where he felt he, he could have and should have done more to fight the fight in the early stages. And it's something we both dedicated our lives to. We're, we're very proud of the, the, the funds that we've raised, the impact that we've been able to have, the lives that we've been able to save. 
but we will not stop and we will not take our foot off the accelerator until, until the job is done because people need that support and they deserve it. Um, well, I have no doubt that the two of you will do that. <laughs> I mean, there's there's no doubt in my mind that you guys will literally nail that and get, get that done. And that's why I'm so thrilled to be able to chat to you for this World AIDS Day, because it is a different World AIDS Day this year. It's going to be a different one. Yeah, and it's a, it's a, I have to say it's a real team effort. And, and one of the other areas that we're working on at EJAF is, you know, we, we very much like to work in what I would call public-private partnerships. So we get, you know, we raise money from very generous individuals, but we're bringing certain corporate partners to the table who can support us by, by giving services, giving time, giving funds, also working with governments to affect legislation. Uh, we have a social impact bond that we set up. It's the first of its kind in the world. We identified that over 58% of all new cases in the UK are within three boroughs of London. So we did the analysis and worked out that it's actually saves the NHS money in the long run to identify undetected HIV sooner rather than have it not detected, which goes on to be chronic illness later on in life and with more and more people becoming infected. So we did the math and we created an investment vehicle whereby identifying those people now on an outpatient basis with a simple blood test, the fund is replenished from the local council and we saved the NHS money in the long run and really slow down new HIV infections in a major, major way. And so those are the kind of innovative ways. Again, it's, it's raising the money outside the government and then working with the government and the healthcare system in Britain to put those two things together to achieve a really, really desirable result and a fund that replenishes itself because it's like investing. It, it, it makes a return on an investment. So that money comes back and can be applied and, and used again. I don't think people realize sometimes because they see the fundraising side and the big mm. concerts and the events and the Oscars party, but they yeah. don't often realize that actually it's, as you said, all the bits below that that you have to do. It's the team effort of getting in the corporate money, the the people that give their time and energy or just, you know, as you say, sorting out the kind of medical side so that people can have a Zoom call if they're too frightened to go, you know, whatever it is. It's Absolutely. Huge. And also working to influence, you know, parts of the world where LGBT people are discriminated against, we see growth, huge growth in new HIV infections in those countries because people associate HIV AIDS with being a gay disease. And if it's stigmatized to be gay in those countries, then HIV gets stigmatized just as well. So nobody wants to go for an HIV test, let alone a gay person. Nobody wants to go and present themselves and possibly be diagnosed with the gay disease um, yeah. or wants to be seen picking up medication because they think, because it's uh, criminalized to be gay in their country that they're putting their life at risk by identifying their HIV status and taking medication for it. So we do work with on a local level, uh, grassroots level, and also trying to influence governments to change these legislative rules, which negatively stigmatize and discriminate against LGBT people globally, because that ultimately fuels AIDS too. I was going to say, it's the stigma. One's got to get rid of this stigma. It's, it's time. Well, the goal end of you know 2030 let's end that stigma by then at the very latest let's finish i cannot thank you enough i wanted to just ask you a couple of quick little quick fire questions of course. So the first one is what gives you life um i have I, the, the the charity work the philanthropy more than anything you know i I'm, i manage alton now i'm a filmmaker uh, I work in theater. I love all of those things, but I have to say nothing gives me energy 
more. Whenever I do anything for the foundation, a fundraiser, or I go out in the field and I witness um, the work firsthand, it just puts so much oxygen in your lungs and wind in your sails. It's a, it's a very, very fulfilling thing to do. Love that. What feeds your soul? My children, yeah. without question. <laughs> Spending time with them, hearing their questions, trying to, to, to you know, shape them and guide them in a way that brings out the best in them without changing or altering the essence of who they are, but just giving them the elegant and hopefully gentle guidance to, to help them be the very best version of themselves. That's to me is, there's nothing like that. No, there's nothing like that. Do you have a daily mantra that you live by or do you just take it day by day? I, well, I do try to take life one day at a time. Um, but a, a saying that I really like is progress, not perfection. Um, because I think sometimes in life, we're told that to make mistakes is wrong and you're not, not supposed to you know, drop the ball or let things happen. And of course, you want to be the very best you can. But making mistakes is part of life. And only by making mistakes, identifying them, do we move forward? Do we learn and we grow? And I like the expression, as long as you're moving forward, there's going to be setbacks along the way. But as long as the general direction of where you're going is in a, in a positive trajectory, then that's progress and that's the most important thing. It's not about being perfect. It's not about having all the answers. It's not about getting everything right. It's about being human um, and hopefully continuing to, to go forward. So I love progress, not perfection. I love that quote. Well, I've, I've loved chatting to you today. I'm so thrilled to be able to chat to you at this time and connect with you on Zoom, even though this is an audio podcast, but at least I'm seeing you while I'm doing it. It's nice to see you and, and, and it's so great to give us the support on AIDS Day. We well, really I really wanted it. to give it the support. I said to you at the beginning, I used to do a program on it many years ago in the 90s and support it live. It was a live show and I really, I really loved doing it. I learned so much about it because I was born in the era where, you know, it all began and I was born way before that. But what I mean is I was aware of it in a very important growing up phase of my life. And, and I'm very passionate like you, that we end the stigma. And it's another thing that we learn to, to live with. And hopefully, ultimately, let's hope we find a cure for. I mean, it's an amazing thing to think that in our lifetime, Emma, we will see the It'll arrival and the yeah. ending of the world's greatest disease. And there's not any other diseases that we can talk to no. like that. And it, it's, it's an amazing testament to all the trailblazers and all the support that's been given um, to, to get us to this point. But consistency and continuing to move forward and address the barriers that are in place. Without yours and Elton's dedication and work to this, it would be a lot further behind. So you guys, you are incredible. And thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening. Don't forget to subscribe. And also, if you've enjoyed this episode, do leave a five-star review and you can find out more by going to buyemma.co.